for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, host Brent Ragsdale speaks with his guest, John Peach. John has a chemical engineering undergraduate degree, and he was employed by a national retail company to implement energy saving systems. He learned that they were not saving energy because the company used the money saved to build more stores. So John returned to graduate school and earned a degree in mathematics. He worked for MIT and conducted research at the intersection of math and physics. Now retired, he and a colleague, Jan DeWild, started a blog, Wild Peaches. Wild Peaches offers mind-sized STEM ideas and experiments beyond a textbook. Brent and John Peach will discuss peak oil, the oil age may be coming to a close much sooner than most people realize. And there is a growing gap between expectations and the thermodynamic reality of renewable energy. How much of oil remains for the world to produce depends on how much oil has been discovered, how much more we might expect to be discovered, and how much we've already used. No one can say with precision when the high point of fossil fuel will occur. But the certainty that such a time is rapidly approaching gets stronger with each passing day. We are all in this together and it will take all of us to make the world safe for human habitation for millennia to come. We at Eco Radio are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. Now our show. Welcome to Eco Radio KC. I'm Brent Ragsdale. This week we're going to talk with John Peach about a topic called peak oil. John, are you are you with us? Yes, I am. All right. Well, welcome. Thanks for to, having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. So we're we're recording this, pre-recording this on Friday the 29th, and it will air next Monday. So um, a little introduction of John. I, I became familiar with him within the last year. Uh, there was something referenced that took on the Internet that took me to his blog. He has a wonderful blog with a partner named um, Jan Wild. So their blog is called Wild Peaches, which is kind of fun. But we're going to talk about one particular blog post that he posted um, about nine months ago, called The Growing Gap. And that gap is really about the gap between the oil that we are using and the oil that we are discovering. So um, John and I, a, a little introduction, we're, we're both mechanical engineers. We have an undergraduate degree in that. But that's where I stopped. And then John worked in industry for 10 years and then went back to school to get additional degrees in mathematics. And then he had a research fellowship at MIT in mathematics. So that tells you the caliber of smarts we're dealing with here. Uh, did I get all that right, John? Um, yeah, I would say it was a, a research position. Um, yeah, it was a full-time job. So, And your, and yeah, your partner, yeah, Jan, it, did. Did, did similar things as well, right? Your, blog, your blog partner. Um, he was... Uh, more into the web design, which is why it looks so good. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Well, I'm super impressed with your topics. Um, to just describe what, what the purpose of your, your Wild Peaches blog is. What kind of things do you cover on that? Well, I wanted to have something that uh, was sort of a hobby. Um, and, you know, it's mostly kind of for my amusement, my own amusement, but I also wanted to be able to get out to people how to apply mathematics. There are a lot of good websites out there that show you how to solve problems and, you know, particular math problems. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to do something similar to the work that I did uh, at MIT. And so I'm trying to 
you know, say, okay, we have this particular problem. How do we solve it? And um, not everything is necessarily, uh, you know, real world applicable, but um, you can probably find something that you might find amusing yourself if uh, you poke through the website. Yeah, you talk about a lot of things. I think it, it would it would be of interest to STEM type people. You know, I'm an engineer. I love a good graph. In fact, it was a graph of yours that was used by Simon Michaud in one of his reports that I read that really made me look you up and and find uh-huh. you. And and that I think came from that blog post. Um, maybe just to, a little bit to to ground this with our audience. I'd like to talk about, you know, I think you and I both believe that that energy is just part of the problems that need to be addressed, you know, in a multitude of other problems around climate change and biodiversity, um, you know, loss and, and, and many other things. Can can you kind of talk about where you see energy fitting into that? Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's only one part of the growing predicament that we're facing. Um, And it's, you know, sort of the big picture is that human population is in overshoot. We're using way too many resources everywhere. And it's not just energy that is the problem. And in fact, I kind of see the, the additional problem is that if we did somehow come up with a new energy source, what would keep us from continuing to degrade the biosphere uh, to the point that it is now? I mean, it would just get worse, I would see, I would think. Yeah. You and I are on the same page. It's, it's amazing. We, we've only talked really once, and that was yesterday. We traded a few emails a few months ago. So let's let's focus in on this concept of petroleum depletion, you know, that what has been handled under the the rubric of peak oil for a long time. You told me yesterday that you've been following it, you know, for 15 or 20 years. I have as well. Um, It was a big deal about 10 years ago. And then fracking happened. And we Mm -hmm. figured out a way to come up with more petroleum it's not going to last much longer, but but that kicked the can down the road another ten years. Would you, would you agree with that? Right. Um, so yeah, it did. And in fact, most of the increase in oil production over the last fifteen years or so has been through fracking or uh, Canadian tar sands. So uh, the rest of the world has pretty much plateaued in production over the last 15, 20 years. Yeah. So, and I, yeah, without that fracking, we, we'd be in big trouble now. Yeah, and I, and I think that we're starting to hear more about that again in the news. The, um, the Saudis put out a statement recently and— there's been some other people that that still follow the peak oil um, or the petroleum geologists that, that that really follow this closely, and a lot of them are saying that hey we've we've hit we're tapping into the source rock now and there's there's really nothing beyond that that's going to have enough energy uh, for us to 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 really be able to keep this party going too much longer. But we'll get we'll get into that maybe before that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about why. Why is oil the master resource? Why, why does that equate to, to gross world product, as you put it? Right. So if you – well, let's start with the kind of the big picture is total energy and uh, how that plays into the gross world product. Um, economics generally says – we need capital and labor to, you know, keep the economy moving. And they overlook energy uh, other than as uh, sort of a secondary input. It's, it's something that, you know, it's uh, external to the economic process. 
But uh, there have been a number of people who've looked a little bit more carefully at this and realized that it's energy that really drives the economy. And there are some very valid thermodynamic uh, reasons, but if you look at uh, or think about the economy without energy, suppose we just turned off all the energy that we are using, then everything would just come to a screeching halt, right? You know, nothing would move. You have no industry, you have no transportation, everything stops. And what they've been finding is that energy and gross world product are in complete lockstep. Um, Increase the GWP, you need more energy to keep that going. So it's you know critical that we have energy to increase the economy. So in other now, words, if if you graphed the, both of those things, the the gross world product in some in some denomination, say dollars, over time, and then you also graphed how much energy humanity is um, using over time, and then got the scales right, they would almost be lines right on top of each other. Is that is that what right. you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I know that your point about the economists sort of at first assuming that the world was infinite, infinite energy, infinite capacity to handle our waste, infinite resources, infinite number of fish in the ocean, all of those things. We're bumping up against those limits now. There are a few economists that come to mind now that are more grounded in the biophysical limits and realities. Um, Richard Daly is one that I've, I've heard of and heard him speak. Steve Keen is another, and I'm sure you've listened to those guys. Um, yeah, I was going to say Steve Keen is very well aware of the problems. Yeah. Um, so if, we, if, if energy is finite, then I guess that means that it's got to it's got to come to an end at some point, doesn't it? Right. And if uh, you think of fossil fuels as being a finite resource, then they will also not just come to an end, but at some point you have to reach the peak of production, which is where the peak oil concept came from. And the reason is that um, if you have a finite amount of it, then if you graph the production over time, at some point you necessarily hit a maximum because if you didn't, then you'd always have something sometime later you'd have more, and that would imply that you had an infinite amount of oil, which we don't. So we have to mathematically reach a peak at some point and it looks like we're pretty close to that right now some people have said that 2018 was a peak others are saying maybe later this decade but in any case we're we're probably very close to the peak yes and i think that even the people that that follow this and know about peak oil there's a there's a mental model that people have in their heads because the, the originator of this idea was a geologist named M. King Hubbard. And in the 50s, he gave a speech at a, some petroleum institute and predicted that, that oil production would peak in the United States around 1970. And that was true until recently with fracking. And so that made people take notice. But according to his modeling... Each individual well has a sort of a symmetrical bell-shaped curve in terms of how much is found and extracted and then how that tapers off. And then I think everybody has that in their head that when we do finally announce that we've reached the peak of oil globally, then that means we've only extracted half. But according to your blog and, and your way of thinking, at which, which I'm convinced of this as well, that's not the case. But I think it's probably time for us to take our first break. 
And then when we get back, we're going to dive into your blog post, The Growing Gap, and, uh, and hear your thesis. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. Voices of Kansas City is a community conversation produced by the Kansas City Star. Fridays at noon, tune in to 90.1 FM to hear Kansas City Black business owners share their stories of struggle, commitment, success, and joy. A new Kansas City Star project created in collaboration with Kansas City Gift, a nonprofit that supports growing Black-owned businesses, and KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. Join us at noon on Fridays this fall for Voices of Kansas City. Beginning Friday, September 22nd, right here on KKFI. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In 2020, 16 young people sued the state of Montana over climate change. They argued that by not considering climate change when permitting the extraction and burning of fossil fuels, the state had violated their right to a clean and healthful environment, which is protected by the Montana State Constitution. This summer, they won their case. And I was really grateful to be up there and get to tell my story and have the chance to have it matter. 22-year-old Ricky Held was the lead plaintiff in Held versus Montana. During the trial, she testified about how intensifying floods, wildfires, and droughts have harmed her family's cattle ranch. I got emotional on the stand talking about my ranch and the changes I've seen and knowing that my state is taking actions that impact my family and me and my community. In the verdict, the judge stated that the state's failure to consider climate change when approving fossil fuel projects was unconstitutional. The state has said they will appeal, but regardless of the final outcome, it marks an important victory for young activists working to hold governments accountable for contributing to the climate crisis. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Welcome back to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. I'm your host, Brent Ragsdale. We're speaking with John Peach on the topic of peak oil. John, I didn't ask you, where, where are you calling in from today? I'm in Carborough, North Carolina. Carborough, okay. Moved uh, down here from Massachusetts after I retired from MIT. We have uh, two of our three children are in the area, so... Uh, it seems like a nice place to come oh, to. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's a lovely place. All right. Well, so your original post that caught my eye on your Wild Peaches blog, which you can find online at wildpeaches.xyz. I've never heard of .xyz. How did you get that extension, by the way? Uh, that was something that Jan did. <laughs> he, he set it all up. Yeah, Excellent. Well, the, the post that I originally read was called The Growing Gap, and that, that's really a gap between the, the petroleum that we are using and the petroleum that we're finding. Why don't you give us a rundown of kind of how, how your analysis of that goes? Okay. Well, so um, it, it's probably useful to, to go back to your introduction of uh, Hubbard and his curves and um, – I think what he was doing at the time was very valid that he said the production from any one field looks like a symmetric bell curve. And he then thought, well, um, if we take the world production, it might look like a bell curve as well. And the reason he thought that uh, we'd have sort of a symmetric descent after the peak was that he thought that some other energy source would come online and take over for oil. And he thought that other energy source would be nuclear. Yeah. But that didn't happen. And so that's why now, you know, 70 years later or whatever, uh, we have much more data on production and discoveries. And we see that these other energy sources are not contributing nearly as much as he thought they would be at this point. So I think right now we're getting about 82% of uh, total primary energy comes from fossil fuels. So 
there somebody um, maybe 20 years ago plotted uh, discoveries and production on the same graph. And beginning around 1983, the amount that we consume every year began exceeding the amount that we were discovering. And so that's where the name Growing Gap came from. And so that plot that's in the Growing Gap um, blog post is an extension of that original one from several years ago. And I then took that thought and uh, looked at the cumulative discoveries in production. And it's kind of shocking, but in the last 25 years or so, we've used half of all the oil ever produced. And the amount that we're consuming continues to grow every year you know, until we actually hit this hard limit peak, we keep going up. And so we're well above the discoveries at this point. And discoveries are now down to basically a trickle. We're only occasionally coming even anywhere close to what we're using. So right now we're using uh, a bit over 36 billion barrels every year. This is worldwide. And we had a fairly good year, I think it was uh, 2022, where they found 20 billion barrels. But other than that, the typical discoveries per year have been 10 or less um, billion barrels. So then just to reiterate, so, that we, that means that on a typical year, we might find a third of a year's worth to add to our reserves. Right, exactly. Yeah. So um, it, it's going to catch up with us pretty soon. Yeah, so I know that you used to get data from BP, from British Petroleum. They, they published data and have, have recently decided they're not going to do that or, or not make it public any longer. So you, you were sort of in search of new data sources. So do you feel like you've got accurate data now? And is it is it the best that we've got, you know, to, to work um, with? Yeah, so there's definitely uh, plenty of room to question data, oil data. Um, and it turned out that DP uh, just transferred ownership of their annual estimates to an independent company. So um, that data is not is, is, is not lost the way I thought it might be. Oh. Um, but then I went around and looked at, you know, what other sources are available? And um, there are several um, companies that produce data. There's also the International Energy Agency based in Paris that, um, is actually funded by, I think it's around 20 or 30 different co- countries. And uh, so it, it's a sort of a government-funded organization. And then a similar one is the Energy Information Agency, which is kind of the equivalent U.S. one. So I decided that those two would probably be at least... Uh, defensible, if not entirely reliable. Um, and so I started using those. There was one other um, source that had a kind of, it, it stood out in sort of an odd way, which is Rystad Energy based in Stockholm. And the way it stood out was that their numbers were much lower than what everybody else had. And they've just published their latest uh, estimates and um, they're kind of in line with my data uh, and actually theirs are lower than what I have. They show much less remaining oil than I do. 
So, I, so you had talked about ma- maybe their numbers were like 500 gigabarrels left. So a gigabarrel would be a billion barrels of oil. Is that is that what you were saying? That's right. Yeah. And so if you look at the um, other estimates, uh, there are plenty of estimates out there. Um, most of them are around 1,700 gigabarrels. I estimate close to 700, and Rheinstadt has 500. So it's really, both of us are, are much lower than kind of the standard estimates. Yeah. And the reason that we're much lower is that, um, well, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is that back in the 1980s, OPEC decided that each member country could produce based on the amount of reserves they had. And so it was kind of funny because, you know, if if a country has, say, 100 gigabarrels in reserves and the plan was you can produce 5% a year or something, whatever, whatever they came up with, um, well, then if they said, oh, actually, our reserves are 200 gigabarrels, then they could go up to 10 gigabarrels per year. Right? Uh, so, and so it incentivized them, the everybody, to, to bump their numbers up. had a spike in claimed reserves. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, somehow this has been accepted over time that that's what they actually have. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that this is what happened. Yeah. So given the fact um, that oil is so important to our civilization, this is the key question. How, how much is left, r- really? Right. Yeah, right. and I, I want to pa- call people's attention to, to something you could, you could find if you did a search online and just put in John Peach Peak Oil. There's you know, not too many hits on, say, on YouTube, but there is a, a talk where you talked about this, and then there's a later kind of addendum where you shared some more slides. So if people are interested in looking that up, that, that's how you would go about it. So sure. that, back, but part of that, that which I, I didn't understand till I saw your addendum slides, there's a thing that, that King Hubbard came up with in the 50s that's called the, the, the Hubbard linearization, which is a mathematical thing, which allows you to look at the trends and then predict how much ultimately that field would produce. Is that correct? Is that how you're getting to your numbers, John? That's right. Well, that's what he did. And um, the way he did it was he plotted uh, the production per year divided by the cumulative production on the y-axis and cumulative production on the x-axis. Uh, so that's a little hard to understand just uh, talking about it. But in the end, it produced a nearly straight line. And um, so if you extend the straight line out, that gives you the point that we run out. goes to zero. Because this line decreases with time. Sure. And so you're doing something similar, but you're using a, something called the logistics function. Is that right? Um, yeah. So uh, it's really a different way of looking at it. Um, and so what I did was I looked at cumulative uh, discoveries. And what I found was that it creates this sort of S-shaped curve. And uh, that's where uh, I fit the logistic logistic function is an S-shaped curve. In fact, it turned out that there were really two S-shaped curves, uh, one after the other. The first one I ran from 1900 to 2000, which is pretty much the bulk of oil discoveries. There was a very good fit to that one. And then I discovered that if I put in the second one starting at the year 2000, I also got an extremely good fit to that. And 
so the, the, the sort of logic behind this is that um, initially there's uh, discoveries are, are low because um, you know this, back in 1900 or so um, they didn't know where to look right away they weren't really ramping up but then you know by the 1960s we had an oil dominated uh, economy and so discoveries were just uh, you know people were looking everywhere for oil and finding it and everything was great but following the peak in around 1964 uh, discoveries began to taper off and so that's why the uh, S of the S-shaped curve is the top of it is uh, tailing off I think that the reason that we got a second boost in you know roughly the 2000s is that um, the cost of money went down um, central banks were making loans um, very inexpensive and it allowed for the fracking industry to, to pick up um, so that permitted a second sort of mini discovery peak but even that one it's clear that we're up at the tail end of that and uh, at the moment there doesn't seem to be a third uh, wave coming in yeah well I know that you um, have kind of a punchline for you know how much you think is left but I, let's save that for the for the next segment it's time for us to take a break sure hey this is Dylan and Dustin from the local, local wave, wave. Friday mornings, midnight to 2 a.m. We got a lot of great guests on our show. We only play local artists from the KC area. We've had on bands like Coney, Creepy Jingles, and The Moose. Underground, independent, local music. Kicking off your Friday, midnight to 2 a.m. Make sure you tune in to The Local Wave. KKFI celebrates National Hispanic Heritage Month. Each year in the United States, between the 15th of September and October, we celebrate the achievements, traditions, and cultural diversity of our communities whose origins are in Latin America, including parts of the United States that were formerly part of Mexico. Happy National Hispanic Heritage Month. Here's a calendar for the week of October 2nd. Race to the Dome, a canoe, kayak, and SUP race on the Missouri River is this Saturday, October 7th. Registration closes at midnight, Wednesday, October 4th. Register at racetothedome.org. Kansas and Missouri, keep your lights out for the birds from September 6th to October 6th. You can do this in your own home during peak migration, 7 p.m. to dawn. Songbirds migrate at night. Like pollution causes them to become confused. We encourage everyone to turn off all unnecessary lights. If working indoors at night, close the drapes. Tuesday, October 3rd, 6.30 to 8 o'clock, Wild Edibles Fall Foraging Class is at the Anita B. Gorman Discovery Center at 4750 Troost Avenue. Come experience a harvest table of wild edibles hosted by Missouri Department of Conservation. There will be taste tests and a few wild recipes to sample. Visit mdc.mo.gov to register. Tuesday, October 3rd, 7 to 8.30, the Kansas Group of the Kansas Chapter of the Sierra Club ask you to meet the author of Running Out in Search of Water on the High Plains. This is a virtual event. Contact Alan Bauman at alanbauman1 at aol.com for more information. Thursday, October 5th from 6 to 7, Communing with the Land, How the Arts, Ecology, and Architecture Meet Along the Path, is a talk at the Sunflower Bike Shop, 804 Massachusetts, Lawrence, Kansas. Learn more about the process of creating hearing with artist Janine Anthony. On Friday, October 6th from 5 to 7 at the Roth Trailhead at Suzanne Ike McCall Nature Reserve, KU Field Station, East 1600 Road, 
Lawrence, Kansas, in honor of the land and immersive experience in hearing an environmentally embedded labyrinth by Janine Antony. Saturday, October 7th, from 9 to 1 is Undumpster Day, a donation drive at the GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium, 1 Arrowhead Drive, KCMO. Reuse Full is excited to partner with the Kansas City Chiefs to host Undumpster Day. Clean out your closets and bring your still good stuff to this one-stop drop for donations. Also on Saturday, October 7th from 10 to 2.30, organized by the Missouri Chapter of the Sierra Club, Meet at the Sierra Club office, Plex Pod Westport, 300 East 39th Street, Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas Cityans are mobilizing to kick fossil fuels out of Kansas City. And now it's time to connect as neighbors and a community to lift up our stories, build our strength, and work together to close KC's last coal plant. It starts with a deep canvas campaign. Volunteers are meeting at the Sierra Club office to get personal training to run successful deep canvas. Register to get a reminder call and instructions for where to meet. Please reach out with any questions by calling Billy Davies, Sierra Club, Missouri Senior Field Organizer at 847-636-3642 or by email at william.davies at sierraclub.org. On Saturday, October 7th, 2 to 6 p.m., Farm Fest at Common Ground, a community celebration. Music by Nicolette Page Trio. For more information, go to kcfarmschool.org. October 7th, Saturday, the Missouri River Cleanup with the Little Blue River Watershed Coalition at Caw Point Park, 1403 Fairfax Traffic Way in Kansas City, Kansas. 9 to 1. Okay, for more info, contact Larry O'Donnell, 816-679-7772. Stay involved. Enjoy the end of the summer. My name is Liz. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. All right, you're listening to Eco Radio. Uh, this is Brent Ragsdale. My guest is John Peach. We're talking about peak oil. John, you're laying out your thesis for just how much petroleum you think is recoverable. And it all makes sense to me. So um, give us kind of your summary of, of where we are with the recoverable oil and how, how much have we used and, and how much more is left and, and how long will, will that last? Okay, so um, using those logistic function fits, um, I see that we're maybe going to recover, let's say, 2,200 gigabarrels total. And at the moment, we're around 2,000. Or I don't mean recover, I mean discover. Um, our, our discoveries uh, are nearly at the end. We maybe have few hundred gigger barrels left uh, to find at most. Um, at the same time, um, <clears throat> our total consumption over you know the last 120 years or so is up to uh, roughly 1600 uh, 1650 gigger barrel. So the remaining amount, uh, especially if you use the RISTAD data, is only 500 gigabarrels. Um, you know, if, if we're generous about it, we might have 700 left uh, using uh, some of my data. But it, it's really getting to the point that um, we're not discovering much and we continue increasing our consumption. And what I saw was that instead of uh, the peak occurring at the midpoint, we're at this point maybe even two-thirds of the way through. And the reason really comes down to the fact that uh, we don't have any other substitutions happening and we keep increasing year after year our total consumption. And so... At some point, we're going to hit the limit on what we discover, and yet we don't slow down on our consumption. And of course, the reason we're not slowing down is because it's what drives the economy. Sure. So just doing a little math on my phone here. So 
Rystad says 500 gigabarrels. You estimate more like 700. So you average that. Say it's say it's really 600 gigabarrels. You said we're using 36 and a half gigabarrels a year. That only leaves us about 17 years at current rates of consumption. Does that sound right? Right. Um, so I've been using uh, the Energy Information Agency's uh, consumption data, which puts it at about 36 gigabarrels per year. I think RISTAD does not include something that the EIA does. And so I think we both agree that it's about 20 years. Because LIFESTAD, um, well, I, I say EIA, the Energy Information Agency, includes um, what's called uh, condensates and uh, refinery gains and these other details, but that um, it, it increases the total consumption, the apparent consumption, that RISAD does not include. So in the end, I think we both see about 20 years left. Yeah. It gets complicated because you you naturally mine the, the easy-to-get stuff first, and now we're to the point where it takes a significant amount of energy to get the, the, the oil out of the ground and processed. So that is like the energy cost of energy, and that's going up year, every year. And so there are some tricks, you know, to to use um, biofuels and, and things like that. But it's it makes it difficult to have an apples-to-apples comparison with previous years, I, can, I think is what you're saying. Right. And I think that most of the real gains in efficiency in extraction happen very early on in the oil uh, period. So, you know, by the 1940s or something, we really had the process down. And the reason is that uh, if a company is inefficient, it's going to go out of business. And certainly there have been technology and efficiency gains over time, but the big ones come early. And so, we're really kind of working at the margins of new technology and, and new efficiencies. And it, it, one of the things that um, there's, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, we had this new technology of horizontal drilling and fracking, and that's what drove the fracking era. Um, it turns out that fracking was actually started Back in the 1960s, it was used in Texas and Louisiana, and horizontal drilling was introduced around 1990. So it wasn't really uh, because of new technology. We had it. It's certainly been improved, but it wasn't a truly new technology. Yeah. So some people point to other reserves of hydrocarbons that they think we'll be able to tap. But you kind of discount those because they would be so expensive to to use. And so you're thinking that at a certain point, you can't really use those without having, the say, the diesel fuel to run the mine equipment uh, to, to extract it. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So... Um, it takes energy to extract the oil. Um, it, it takes energy to process it as well. You, you have to refine it and have to transport it and get it to the end use. And so you put some energy into your production chain and then you get more back out. And this is called ROI, or energy return on input. For most of the oil era, we were getting ROIs of 50 to 1. That is, one unit of energy input gave us 50 back. The problem now is that the vast majority of what's left is in Canadian and Venezuelan tar sands. 
And it's estimated that there's about 150 billion barrels of tar sands in Canada and 1,200 billion barrels in Venezuela, which is another contributor to why people think there's so much oil left. It's a huge amount. But the problem is that the energy return on input for those is maybe four, whereas we were or we were used to getting uh, an EROI of 50. And I think that when our conventional oil begins to deplete, we're not going to have the energy available to get it out of the tar scene. Now, we're still getting four units out for one unit input, which would seem like it would be enough to keep things going. But um, Charles Hall, who's an ecologist, and others have estimated that we need at least 15 to 1 just to maintain our current uh, civilization. And so once it gets down to around 4, it may not be enough to keep things going, and I expect that we really won't produce much of the Tarzan. Well, this has been really interesting. We're we're running out of time, so I, if we had, uh, you know, a whole other show, I would dig into the fact that diesel fuel, in particular, is is very um, necessary for civilization, particularly for agriculture and for getting the goods, you know, to the to the stores and to the towns it's all across. Keep the trucks running. Keep the trucks yep. running. And I think that we're going to have to really, if this scarcity starts to happen within the next 20 years, like you're talking, we're going to have to make some tough choices on what what we use that remaining energy for. And that would be a could be right. a whole nother show. And then I think yeah. we, we had also talked about, you know, what are the prospects for replacing this fossil energy with renewable energy? That that could be a whole nother show, too. Um, it, sure. You know, um, it was this man, Simon Michaud, a, a geologist that works for the the uh, the Finnish Geological Survey that has been bringing to light, you know, this issue that it's not just the oil that's that's short, but it's it's a lot of other um, elements that we would need to do the energy transition, you know, to to uh, to make things more electric. And it's going to be particularly difficult for big transportation, for agriculture, for any industrial process that needs a lot of heat. Those are going to be super difficult things. But we really don't have much time today. Maybe I'll have you back on if we get a good response from this show. And listeners, I'd encourage you to give us some feedback on our Facebook page and uh, reach out to me if you're interested in this. I'd love to meet local people who are having these same kinds of thoughts. I will remind you that if you came in late on this uh, broadcast, that we have it uh, recorded as a podcast that anyone can download. Um, John, with our remaining couple of minutes, is there any other points you'd like to make today? Well, um, I'm glad you brought up about Simon Michaud and his uh, research. Um, the same problems that we're having with finite resources in oil. Um, we've done the same thing to the metals and minerals that we would need for the transition. We've used them already. And uh, so it's going to be much harder to find and process new uh, sources there. And we have the same EROI problem that uh, we're getting to the tail end of, of those as well. Yeah. Well, John, it, this has been a really fun interview for me. I hope it wasn't too technical for our audience, but um, I feel like we've made a good case for the fact that we need to be sitting up and taking notice to the, the fact that e even beyond climate change and, and, and needs to reduce how much carbon we're burning, there just there isn't enough left to keep us going at our at our. Um, you know, expected uh, way of civilization, you know, for, for too many more years. 
So thank you very much for the, the work that you're doing and for sharing it in the blog and online. I've learned a lot from you, and, and it's been fun. So, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. KKFI celebrates National Hispanic Heritage Month. While we acknowledge the limitations in our programming in language and time, we at KKFI emphatically recognize and honor the diverse histories, cultures, contributions, and resilience of all people whose heritage is linked to Latin America and the Caribbean, including the indigenous peoples of the region. KKFI encourages you to join us in celebrating the vast, generous, and positive impact those communities have made in these United States. We wish you a happy National Hispanic Heritage Month. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of October 2nd, 2023. Democracy Now! reports. Biden's speech in Arizona was interrupted by a climate activist who called on the president to declare a climate emergency. Biden met him after his speech. 18 youth activists with the Sunrise Movement were arrested after they occupied the office of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, demanding he take action on the climate crisis and avert a government shutdown. Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Congressmember Jamel Bowman of New York had introduced the Green New Deal for Public School Acts, a $1.6 trillion initiative to eliminate all carbon pollution from schools. EcoWatch reports. In an unprecedented climate change case for the European Union, six young people from areas in Portugal affected by heat wave and wildfires took 32 European governments to court, arguing that the country's failure to take swift action on the climate crisis violated their human rights. Inside Climate News reports, 16 Technical Assistance Center created jointly by EPA and the Department of Energy will play a key role in helping facilitate funding under the Biden administration's Justice 40 initiative, which will deliver benefits for the Inflation Reduction Act to disadvantaged communities. Aluminum is crucial for a clean energy economy, but its production is a leading source of greenhouse gas emissions, as well as toxic air and water pollution. There is a real opportunity with the Inflation Reduction Act to invest in clean primary aluminum to meet growing needs, create jobs, reduce pollution, and improve working conditions as we upgrade and modernize aluminum production. There is no clean energy future without aluminum. So it's what we do next that matters. If the industry doesn't clean up and modernize, they will be left behind. So we hope they can transform to meet the needs of the future. E&E News reports, the Sierra Club Defenders of Wildlife and the Natural Resources Defense Council have announced layoffs of dozens of employees. The leaders of the Sierra Club Defenders of Wildlife and NRDC each cited budget woes when they announced their latest layoffs. National environmental nonprofits are being hit by a conventional wisdom that donors are more likely to donate to environmental causes when they view the administrations to be a threat on those issues. Green groups across the board have experienced a similar fundraising downturn in the post-Trump era. Biden administration plans to hold three oil lease sales off the nation's coast over the next five years under the smallest national oil program in the country's history. The largest program on record written by pro-development administration of President Ronald Reagan included an average of eight scheduled sales a year between 1982 and 1987. The Lever reports. 
Automakers say the auto workers strike will tank the electric vehicle transition. That's a lie. The automaker corporations are pitting unions and climate activists against each other while they authorize billions in stock buybacks and dividends. In truth, the only thing standing behind a just transition for workers and a renewable economy is corporate greed. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI. FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Mabian, and you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page. Up next is Fiesta Musicale, followed by Noche Magica. Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Oh, I'm